Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, uh, we left off last week, and everything was perfect. <laughs> and now, uh, ho- hopefully we're not going to mess things up, although we, we have messed things up. I mean, on the podcast, but yeah, <laughs> we uh, uh, th- things are not going to go well in uh, Genesis chapter three. And I've heard people say that if it wasn't for Genesis three, there wouldn't have been the rest of the Bible, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, Ch- chapter one and two, everything is beautiful, especially as you think about God's creation, and especially as I think about Stephen, like Adam and Eve, like dwelling in this garden with God. It's really cool to think about God being there with them and thinking about what that relationship looked like. God has told his creation, both the creatures, but also uh, mankind, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so things are getting bigger and larger, and they're working. Uh, Adam and Eve are working in the garden, and everything's great. It's a blessing. And things are going to take a pretty obvious shift starting in chapter 3 and verse 1. Yeah. So let's read the text here. Uh, Again, just to to recap, um, at the very end of chapter 2, God had crowned his creation with the gift of marriage. And it ended by saying the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then Genesis chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the first person we are introduced to in chapter 3, it's not even a person, but it's an animal, the serpent, in verse Mm -hmm. 1. Although I think it's also a person in a sense yes. that we know that there's more than just a regular snake yes. going on here. And what's really cool, like Stephen said, we do we do know there's more that's going on. And, you know, for the longest time, I just read Satan into the serpent here in chapter 3. But I really didn't have a place that I could go to to nail that down. It's like, well, how do we even know that the serpent is Satan? Um, well, if you flip to the complete other side of the Bible in Revelation chapter 12, and verse 9, it refers to Satan there as the ancient serpent. Mm-hmm. And also you can just tell by the, the cunning nature or the crafty nature of this creature, his want to trip up mankind, that this is exactly who Satan is. He is the great deceiver, and we'll talk more about that as we get into the podcast today. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, my translation says crafty. Others say he was very cunning. But the idea is he, he's kind of shifty, right? He's kind of untrustworthy he's he's out to get somebody and that's exactly what he does here with adam and eve mm-hmm. and it is interesting um 
I mean, this is a talking snake. Uh, Eve does not seem to be particularly surprised by that. Uh, we don't know exactly why that is. Uh, the text doesn't ever give an explanation for why Eve's not like, oh, a talking snake, you know. Um, but it may be that the way that this happens, that Eve was not particularly caught off guard by this. There was something different about creation at that point. Again, the text just doesn't say. But I will say this, that we do know that Adam and Eve were given dominion over all of the beasts of the field. And they are supposed to exercise that dominion. And one of the things happening in this chapter is that it is one of the beasts of the field. It says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Is that uh, what's happening here is Satan is using a beast of the field, which the humans are supposed to rule over, He's using that beast as a way to tempt them and get them to submit to one of the beasts. And so what we're going to see happen in Genesis 3 is a reversal of the headship order. It's supposed to be man and then woman as a helper for man and then them two together to have dominion over the beast of the field. But what's going to happen is the woman listens to the beast of the field, the man listens to the woman, and they all suffer for it. Yeah. And so is there a total reversal of God's created order in this in this fall story? And I in no way want to get into all of the ins and outs of the origins of Satan, but I do think it's worth pointing out the serpent that's talked about in verse 1. It says it's more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. It is a created being. Mm-hmm. Satan is not on the same level as God. He is very clearly created, and one of the things we learn in Revelation is he is going to be destroyed by Jesus Christ. And so... Satan is is a created being. There is not dualism going on here where there's like an all-eternal God that's good versus an um, all-eternal not-good God named Satan. That that is not the Bible picture, Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to say that out from the outset. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's also worth noting here that God allows his creation to be tested. Um, God did put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, knowing that that was a prohibition. And he also allowed the serpent to get into the garden, knowing that the serpent would tempt the man and the woman. And so it's important for us to to see the character of God in this, in that God gave the man and the woman everything they needed to know. In just a minute, we'll see that Eve quotes God's words back, and she knows exactly what the prohibition was and what the consequence was. Now Satan's going to twist that in this temptation, but God allowed them to be tested and they failed the test, but that God did not create a world where they were just sealed off from any potential temptation. God created a, a perfect world, but he allowed them the choice. And I think that some of this just goes back to well, like, why would God do that? Why would he even allow them the possibility to sin or to choose something else? And I'll be honest, I, I think that a lot of it goes back to our capacity to love like God. And love requires a choice. There has to be another option. If we're just kind of robots that don't have any choice but to serve God and to do what he tells us to do, that's not really love. That's not really a relationship. But relationship and love require free will. It requires a choice. And for there to be a choice, there has to be an alternative. And so God creates the tree of life, but he also creates the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he creates a perfect environment for them 
with paradise all around them, but he also provides a test. And we're going to see that continue in other stories in the Bible where God blesses people greatly, but then also provides some hard things that can help them to grow, but are also can be a stumbling block if we let them be. And so we're going to see that happen, of course, here in the very first temptation and the very first sin from the beginning of the Bible. So what I think would be helpful for us to do here as we examine what Satan says and kind of this dialogue between Satan and the woman is think about some of the tactics that he is using to tempt the woman, like Stephen's talking about. And so the very first thing, I want us to notice what Satan says to the woman in verse 1. I'll read that again. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So he starts off with a question, almost trying to confirm, Hey, is this what God said? And I think it would be helpful for us to go back and look at chapter 2 and verse 16, where the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So that is what God said. Uh, The very first thing, and we talked about this in last week's podcast, was God, I believe, is emphasizing that you can eat from any of the trees in this garden. Look at all of these great things that God has given man, and you can eat any of them. But as we see the first prohibition, there is one tree you should not eat from in verse 17. And he not only gives the prohibition to not eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he also gives the first consequence that in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. But it seems to be, Stephen, that the focus that God puts is look at all the other trees that you can eat. What a blessing. Mm-hmm. Do you see what Satan is doing in verse 1? Look I think, at the one thing you can't do. I think that's exactly right. He, he's casting doubt on God, and he's saying, look, God is trying to say that you, you, know, that you can't have this one thing, that God is holding out on you. And I really think that that is one of the tactics that Satan uses, is he tries to shift the focus of what God said. And really, whenever you go and, and you listen to maybe a false teacher, that's really all they're trying to do. They're, they're holding to a resemblance of something that God said. But all they need to get you to do is to think of it a little bit differently, to shift or alter it just enough that you start living in a way that you shouldn't be living. And that's exactly what Satan does here. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important to see the character of God in this is that God has provided a world where the vast majority of creation is allowed. It's not like he lets us pretend for a minute that he he, he created a hundred trees in the garden, hundred kinds of trees. And then he says, okay, like there's only one tree you can eat from, but 99 of these don't touch him. I mean, it's like, wow, like that seems like set up for failure, but it's, it's really the other way around. There's like all these trees that you can eat from. No prohibition. Enjoy them. And there's one that, no, but there is a prohibition here. Don't eat from that tree. And the other thing was, is God told him which one it was. It wasn't like, <laughs> all right, you got a hundred trees here. One of them will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to figure out, you know, no, like he's like, okay, look at all this you can do. Here's the one thing you can't do. But isn't that just so human nature that like of all the things that we can do, we're fascinated by and kind of obsessed with the one thing that we're not supposed to do. And uh, that's what Satan, that's his tactic, is to not, don't pay attention to all the good things that are allowed. 
pay attention to the one thing that you that looks good to you, but God is actually trying to protect you That's by right. telling you no. So uh, yeah, yeah. Stephen and I are both raising kids, and so you especially see this in toddlers, right? Or you mm-hmm. you tell them all the things that are a no no in the house, but there is an overwhelmingly amount of things in the house that they can play with, but kids have a tendency to focus on the things that they yeah. can't have. And and one of the things my kids will say sometimes is uh, if I tell them, okay, like, no, I don't want you to play with that right now. You can't do that. They'll be like, then what can I do? It's like, okay, there are literally hundreds of things <laughs> in this house that you can do, but you are so distraught because I told you no to the one thing that yeah. you happen to be focused on. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's what Satan does with us, yes. is he gets us to think this is the only thing in the world that I really want to do when God has blessed us with so wow. many pure alternatives. And he gets us to think, if I get this, I will be happy. Right. I will be fulfilled. I will get what I want, and I'll, I'll be satisfied. And I'm diving into what next week's episode is going to be because that's not what happened with Adam and Eve and that's not what happens with sin either. We, we will not be happy once we get it, but we will be left empty and ashamed. Yeah. So, first temptation, did God actually say this? Satan wants to cast doubt on what God actually said. However, Eve comes back and answers absolutely correctly. Um, she says, uh, you shall not eat of the... the Excuse me. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Um, some people say that the touching was an extra prohibition. I don't think that was a misunderstanding here. Is that she understood, don't eat that tree. Don't yep, touch it. Exactly. Um, she uh, does use an extra word there, but I don't think that's an adding on to what God prohibited. Um, the point here is Eve knew better, mm-hmm. um, and Eve was not stupid. She listened to what apparently Adam had told her about the prohibition. So, okay, here, we know exactly what God said. There was no confusion in Eve's mind about what God said until the serpent put a seed of doubt there. And we need to sometimes realize that is like sometimes we know exactly what we need to do until temptation comes along and we start listening to someone. Well, did, does the Bible actually say this or that? And it's like, no, you know what the Bible says, and it's clear. Until someone comes along with some interpretation or some doubt. And so we need to be really careful um, about people who would cast doubt on the clear commands of God. Because that's exactly how this temptation starts in Genesis 3. And, yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and so I think another thing to focus in on is what the serpent does in verse 4. So Satan, he's certainly going to try and shift our focus or kind of skew what God said and, and just be a little crafty in how he gets us to trip up. But there's another tactic he uses in verse 4. The serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. Okay, that's what we call a lie. That is just not true. I mean, it's, it's kind of even lazy at this point. Like, he's he's giving up on the whole, like, trying to shift what God said. He's like, oh, well, I'll just lie to you now. You're not going to die. Well, and what's interesting is what he chooses to lie about. He doesn't say, oh, God said it's okay to eat the fruit. He never actually says that. He just denies the consequences. Yes, he makes it seem like the consequence isn't as steep as God made it out yeah. to be. Or just denies it and says, yeah. you're not going to die. That thing that God said would happen when you did the bad thing, th- the consequences go away. And that's a, another huge tactic of Satan is not to say that it's okay to do it, but to say if you do the bad thing, 
nothing's going to happen. Right. Like, you're not going to suffer for it, which we need consequences. And again, this is like child training 101, right? Yeah. You have to set up consequences and be consistent e- with them. Even living in a nation that we live in, there's consequences for certain actions. And if you take those consequences away, guess what's going to happen? Right. All of the bad stuff. That's and right. so Satan knows what he's doing here. So I appreciate you pointing that out, Stephen. That, that's exactly right. You know, just taking away the consequence would then motivate someone to just say, oh, well, okay then, well, I will give into that. If it's that. a rule, but no one's enforcing it, who cares about the rule? Exactly, exactly. And so there's another thing he says there in verse four, or in verse five. He says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan comes in with what I'll call the secret sauce, right? Well, here's something that God knows that he just chose not to tell you. And again, don't we hear people talk that way now when they're trying to tempt you or trying to get you to do something? I know something that you don't know. And that's what he's trying to get Eve with. God knows that when you eat from this, your eyes are going to be open and you are going to be like God. And that is really, I think, playing to man's sense of pride. I get to be something greater than what I am. God's great. And if I eat this, then I will be like him. And what's just really sad about this is, uh, we'll probably talk about this more here in just a second, but all the different ways the woman could have responded to, to, to the serpent. But one of the things that stands out to me here is back in chapter 1, it tells us that man was made in the image of God. In his likeness, man was already like God to the degree he wanted them to be. But that wasn't enough. Eve wanted to be just like God, and so she, she bites. She takes the bait. She listens to what the serpent says. Mm-hmm. And what's also interesting about this is that you'll be like God in knowing good and evil. And sometimes I think I've thought of this for a long time as just almost a factual sense of like, well, you'll know what's good and bad. I think that the term knowing here may be more the idea of like up to this point in the story, only God has been the one saying, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was not good, so he fixed it, you know, uh, with man being alone. But here, it's like, well, you'll be like God in a kind of an extra step. You're going to get to know what's good and evil. Maybe more in the sense of, like, getting to name what's good and evil. You get to decide for yourself. Actually, that thing that God said was bad, maybe I know that it's actually good and God's holding out on me. Again, I think that that is kind of Satan's tactic here is to hold out. Maybe, you know, God God's holding something out on you. And so maybe there's actually something good about this that, you know, he, he's trying to keep from you. And if you actually do this, not only will you not have the bad consequence, but there'll be some positive consequences for you that God doesn't want you to know about. Like he's, he's trying to be maybe prideful and keep you from some pleasure that he, he knows about, but you don't know about. And so again, Satan is just lying, he's manipulating, and he wants Eve to doubt God's goodness and God's trustworthiness. He wants Eve to think that God is somehow holding out on her, that he wants her to be miserable. Um, and again, all this plays into like, oh, God wants me to be happy kind of mentality that is so prevalent right now. So it really is sinister to see just how Satan goes about this very, it's a very simple rule that God gave, 
But Satan goes some really crafty ways to undermine Eve's relationship with God and to doubt him. That's one of the worst things that Satan can do to us, is to get us to doubt God's goodness. And that's exactly the way he approaches Eve here. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting cross-reference that someone pointed out to me once. It was in Isaiah, the fifth chapter. Whenever uh, Isaiah there, Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Mm. Um, just, I thought, a, a super helpful cross-reference. And Satan, he knows what he's doing here, and we need to be be careful to not start to think we know what's right and that we know what's good. Listen to what God said is good, and especially listen to God when he says something is evil. Mm-hmm. So Satan has brought the temptation kind of in two stages here. Did God actually say, first stage, and then you will not surely die, but... God knows these things. And now the, the actual sin happens. And before she sins, you can see that the woman changes the way that she looks at the fruit. Originally, she was looking at it and says, I know that God, who I trust, said no about that, so I'm not going to do it. But now she looks at the fruit with some new eyes and says, ah, verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so she took of its fruit and ate. So three things that it says Eve saw about the fruit. The first is that it was good for food. And that's what God created food for. And again, he provided plenty of other ways for them to get food that were perfectly fine. But she said, "Ah, man, this will fill my belly. Like, I need to eat to live. God made me that way. And so, hey... This is another way to live, uh, is to eat this food. It would be delicious. Uh, I like it. Um, the second is, and it just looks good. And it is kind of interesting that God is the one who created all the different trees of the garden. And he, I'm sure, created all of them beautiful in some way. But he could have created the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil to just look rotten. And be like, man, I don't even want to eat that. It's got like thorns coming out of it and stuff like right, that. Right, right. It's like, yeah, this prickly thing. I don't want to put that in my mouth. But he does create it in such a way that it it does look appealing. And again, this is another test that God allows the woman to go through. But again, it's made all the more magnified by Satan's words about it. Now she's looking at it in a different way. It's, it's, it's a delight to the eyes. And the thing that Satan really played on is this last one. It's desired to make one wise. Oh, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Oh, you know, it's going to change what you know. And so that, I think, is really the one that he zeroes in on. Um, There's just the carnal things of it fills my belly. It's beautiful to look at. But the intellectual temptation is even greater. Like, oh, this is going to make me more important, more like higher up in God's world. And so and that's really uh, all of those things combined make a really persuasive temptation. Again, I think we give Eve a hard time that she let the serpent get her, but man, we all fall in the same way, mm-hmm. in one of these ways. I think it is interesting in 1 John 2 that he talks about, you know, don't desire the things in the world, don't love the things of the world, and he points out the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life or pride in possessions. And those three do kind of map onto the way that Eve looks at this fruit with uh, it's good for food, 
It's kind of like the lust of the flesh, the light to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's desire to make you wise. Um, but uh, it is interesting to see that Satan uses the same old tricks over and over again, that almost any temptation that we go through can be more or less mapped onto one of those ways that he tempts us. And so in verse 6, she sees these things, and then she takes from its fruit and ate. That, of course, is the first sin, is, is taking it and eating it. That's what God said not to do. And so it's really important to see that like no sin had been committed up into her taking it. And so the battle with Satan always begins in the mind. Mm-hmm. When he lays out his logic, although be it flawed in this case, it is up to us to decide, does that make sense enough to me that I am then going to take the action of sin? And that's exactly what Eve does. Once she's convinced, once she sees it, she takes it. And so fighting Satan starts not when we begin to sin, but it starts before that when he starts trying to convince us of these things. And so she takes and she eats from it. And uh, it's just really fascinating to think about all the different times that, that seeing and taking is, uh, is in the book of Genesis. Yeah, it, we won't go into all these references, but the two verbs here, the woman saw and then she took and ate. Those two verbs come up uh, kind of as a pattern in the book of Genesis and even way beyond the book of Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 6, uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives. And, of course, this is a rebellious thing in Genesis 6, and there's a sin that results from that. Um, in Genesis 12, when Abraham is in Egypt, um, it says in Genesis 12, in verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And again, you can look at Genesis 30, verse 9, Genesis 34, verse 2, Genesis 38, 2. This just becomes a, a pattern in Scripture of seeing and taking. And I, I will say, not every time that you see those two verbs used together is it always the, the bad sense. But this first sin of seeing and taking um, continues throughout the Genesis book and throughout the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures, um, is that that's what Satan wants us to do is to see with our eyes, be lured, and then to take, to actually act on our temptation and to sin against God. Uh, but that's just, I found that very interesting to see that pattern in some of these, uh, the way these stories are recorded. This is a, a verbal pattern in, in Genesis. What's really interesting, after she sees and she takes, she goes and shares it with her husband. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate as well. Sin very often is not an individual thing. Once we've participated in it, we often like to take it to someone else. Mm -hmm. We want to make it a group effort now. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I'd say, namely, there's some already guilt with her and now wanting to share that with someone else and introduce it to someone else. But also there's probably a part of her that still believes some of this is true of what Satan is saying. And so she takes and she says the same things. I'd imagine uh, that there was some convincing on her part to Adam for him to also take this and to eat from it. And so uh, this wasn't like she just like swapped fruit on him or something like that. He, he was just as guilty as eating this fruit as anyone else was, or as she was at this point. And there's actually some nuance in the New Testament that says that the man was not deceived as the woman was. Like She bought into it, but Adam knew good and well 
that uh, there's a sense in which he knew even maybe better than she did not to say that eve was was stupid but that adam knew exactly what he was doing he was not deceived in the same way the woman was but it raises a question in Genesis 3. Where was Adam? Yeah, where is he? Where is Adam in this whole thing? It just, the text only says who was with her. Now, we, we don't know. There's a lot of debate over was Adam like right next to Eve the whole time the serpent was talking? Was he a few rows over in the garden, you know, behind another tree? We know he was in the garden somewhere. Uh, we don't know at what point he was in the literal vicinity. But I think to some extent it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Adam is absent from all this. And Adam when the woman broke God's command, should have been involved. He should have been helping her to see, no, don't listen to that that serpent. I don't know what he told you, or maybe he did know what he told her. But Adam's role as head is totally, he fails completely in his headship in this this story because he's totally passive. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't react. It just says he was there with her. And, and participates. And then he just falls right in. There's no resistance. There's no like, hey, shouldn't we think about... He just totally goes along with it. And so again, the headship role is reversed. The woman listens to the animal. The man listens to the woman. And everything falls uh, from the from the bottom up, so to speak. And it's all reversed because uh, people are not listening to the one they need to listen to. And um, all of them, of course, are rebelling against God, who is over all of it. And so the God, man, woman, animal hierarchy has been totally reversed in the first sin. Yep. Animals at the top, uh, then the woman, then the man, and the bottom is God, who is being ignored and misrepresented and slandered, and ultimately he is being um, they're disobeying him. Yeah. They're, they're ignoring what God said, and they're unfortunately going to reap the consequences of that. So we're going to talk about verse 7 here. Uh, Lord willing, we're also going to talk about verse 7 in the next podcast, but it's obvious that it's connected to what just happened. So in verse 7 it says that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is the beginning of the fallout, starting with their eyes being opened. And first, Stephen, when you hear that, you're like, oh, that's... That's nice, you know, as you think about, maybe even in the New Testament, as you think about somebody's eyes being closed to the gospel or being closed to Jesus and their eyes opening up to who Jesus is and being willing to listen, you know, that on the surface sounds like a good thing, but that's not always the case. Here, it's not a good thing. Their eyes are opened in a way that they weren't before, and there's an alertness now of shame and nakedness specifically that's mentioned here because if you go right back to chapter 2 and verse 25 right after it says that you know they're married and like everyone's happy and there's this uh this leaving and cleaving that happens it says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed there was this sense of of happiness and enjoyment even being around your spouse the on one other person in the world completely naked and open but now, after sin, their eyes are opened, and they're ashamed. There's a lot to get into with that, and I don't even know if I fully understand everything behind that. But their eyes being opened here were obviously not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting here is uh, that's exactly what the serpent said would happen. Um, and the, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. So they may realize, and, and that, of course, he poses it as, oh, this will be great. You'll be like God when your eyes are open. But now their eyes are opened, and instead of realizing, oh, like, I am more like God now, and I'm no better, their eyes are open, and they're like, oh, no. 
I'm naked. And I am ashamed of that. And so what this introduces is shame into the world, and it also is the first breaking of relationship. Um, Satan always wants to divide people. He wants to divide people from each other, and he wants to divide people from God. And both of those things happen. We'll see more next week with the division from God. But one of the first things that happen happens when they sin is that they try to hide themselves. They knew that they were naked, and so they try to cover their own body. There's a sense of self-shame and even being ashamed of their own body that is introduced with the first sin. God created humans with bodies. That's a good thing. But now it's like, oh, I feel shame about the way I appear, and I need to cover myself because now they have something to be ashamed of before they were naked and not ashamed now there's sin and so the nakedness becomes associated with that and i need to cover myself and it's also a barrier in their marriage now before the man and his wife were both naked they could see each other they're not ashamed but now they hide from each other and feel the need to put on uh, these loin coverings uh, because oh no like now there's something in our relationship that's broken. And so sin breaks our relationship to ourself. It breaks our relationship with others, even in marriage. And it breaks our relationship with God. In just a minute, we'll see that God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which would have been amazing, but they hide from God. Mm-hmm. So they hide from each other. They hide from God. And something I think is fascinating to think about is that they want to cover themselves because they realize they're ashamed and naked. But the coverings that they make for themselves are totally insufficient. Yeah, and it says that they are loin coverings, and so you can imagine what that would have looked like. But it's not a complete covering of the body. It's only certain parts. And the reason why I think it's important to zero in on that is because of something we're going to get to, Lord willing, in the next podcast, is when God, after he hands out the consequences... In verse 21, it says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He covered them. Mm -hmm. This clothing that they had made for themselves to cover up the shame that came from sin is insufficient. Okay, there's something we need to do with that. We are insufficient to cover ourselves whenever we have sinned. Mm -hmm. God is the one that creates the covering. How does he do that? Spoiler alert, he does that through Jesus Christ, his son. And that will be a point we can make greater whenever we get there. But I think it's important to point out now that they are trying to fix this themselves. Okay, there's shame. Okay, how do I fix the shame? Okay, I make this. That'll cover me for now. Past that, I don't know what to do. And isn't that exactly what we try to do with sin? We, we try to fix it ourselves, but we always come out insufficient. Mm-hmm. We, we're not as covered as we would like to be. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a variety of ways we try to do that. We try to uh, punish ourselves and make ourselves feel better by kind of being mean to ourselves. That doesn't work. Uh, sometimes we try to, oh, I'm just going to do lots of good things mm-hmm. to try to make up for the bad thing. And that, I mean, it's good to do good things, but that never erases the bad things. And this is kind of the works salvation concept that Paul will talk extensively about in the New Testament. Salvation by works. It, it never happens. That's a an insufficient covering for our sin and shame. And so what can wash away my sins? What can cover it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's where all this is pointing, is that only in Christ can our sins actually be covered 
and our shame actually dealt with. And so all of this is a foreshadow of what God is going to do in Christ coming down the road. And um, there are echoes of that. Even here in the first sin, uh, we know that ultimately God's going to take care of this. Yep. Amen. So, Lord willing, we're going to continue talking about the fallout of this in chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 8 through the end of the chapter next week, Lord willing. So we hope you can join us then. Yeah. Um, Thank you all so much for listening today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, uh, please subscribe. Leave us a rating or review so we can reach more people. Um, If you'd be interested in studying the Bible with us, we'd love to address your questions or study a text together, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies or worship, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.